The people of Israel believed in a personal God, and by this I mean that he speaks to individuals. He speaks to Abraham. He calls Abraham a friend, even. He debates with Abraham and with Moses, challenges Jeremiah, speaks of David as a man after his own heart, so God speaks of his own heart. In turn, the psalmist and others speak to God as if God is personally responsive to prayer, presuming that God can listen and even sympathize with us. So the psalmist often appeals to God to have compassion on his misery and assumes that God understands that, what it's like to be miserable. Now, Israel is hardly unusual in having a personal God. The gods of ancient Greece, for example, uh, had intimate relationships with human beings, even so far as to uh, father human beings and so on. Men and women were devoted to the gods. There's a whole book on this written by a Dominican priest in the mid-20th century. And they speak to the gods much as Job or Moses would have spoken to God. And this similarity between Israel and the pagan religions has led some modern skeptics to see this very notion of a personal God as a kind of primitive, childish vestige of of, uh, an earlier time of the human race. If there needs to be a God, shouldn't he be more like Aristotle's God, uh, living completely self-sufficient, not having to worry about the vagaries and contingencies of our world? more like a principle than a personal God. This conclusion might be warranted except for two things that changed everything. The first was the incarnation of God's Son. God sent, God the Father sent the Son into the world. And this Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of Mary of Nazareth, a descendant of David, is very much a person. Peter and John, in their writings in the New Testament, are emphatic about the fact that they knew this man. He walked among them. They ate and drank with him. The poor and the sick would plead with him, and he responded with pity and compassion. He's a personal incarnation of God. The second history-changing event was the death and resurrection of this man, who was also God. In this breaking of the barrier between heaven and earth that takes place at our Lord's crucifixion, a second advocate was sent by the Father. So first, God sends the Son. God sends the Holy Spirit. And again, Peter and John and then Paul attest to visible signs that the Holy Spirit is present in the early church. The early church communities, they could tell when they had received the Holy Spirit. This was clear. This was God's proof that he really is personal. Israel was right to think that God heard her prayers and would respond. He really does care about us. He does hear our prayers and feel compassion for us. Now keep in mind, it's important to remember that God has revealed this about himself. We did not uh, prove this out of our own resources. Our ancient fathers and mothers intuited this about God. But those who reasoned about God often enough denied that this was the case, that God was a person or three persons. We can only be certain about this because God chose out of his love for us to reveal himself to us. 
This is why, in turn, the mystery of the Trinity, which we celebrate today, this is not something that can be established on the basis of unaided reason. We call it a mystery for that reason, right? If a non-believer challenges us on this point, uh, and I was in a long-standing debate with uh, some atheists in a Facebook group many years ago, it was really very helpful in clarifying many things about this. But oftentimes you'd hear people say, well, this whole idea of the Trinity is convoluted, unnecessary, nonsensical. How can you have three persons in one? In this situation, we should actually resist the temptation to think that we could argue from some shared perspective, some shared reasons. Uh, if you, you either have God reveal himself to you or you don't. Uh, or, or if he reveals himself, you might say no, and then you don't have the information you need to see how God can be three persons in one. We know God is Trinity because he revealed this about himself. So a demonstration of this reality isn't from words and arguments. It has to begin with our changed lives. If this is true, it has to be visible in the way we live. Otherwise, we're just talking, right? What kind of impact does my relationship with the Son of God have on my life? on the way I treat other people? What impact does the Holy Spirit have on me and continue to have on us? I mentioned a moment ago that Peter, John, and Paul, the apostles, they could see when the Holy Spirit was present in a church community. It was obvious. What were they seeing in Antioch and Galatia and elsewhere? We tend to think of unusual signs. If you go to a place and people are speaking in tongues, we might say they have the Holy Spirit. Um, maybe. I think that requires more discernment. There's a, there's a better way of discerning this. First of all, there's a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the first thing that has to be present, an understanding that God sent his Son into the world. But... The matter is even simpler in some ways. St. Paul enumerates the fruits of the Holy Spirit in his letter to the Galatians. If you think about fruits, this, the meaning of this word, fruits always appear after germination and buds and blossoming, and it's the last thing that appears. And so if we have the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit has been at work in our lives and changing us little by little. But what are these fruits? Love, joy, Peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So that's one of the reasons why talking, speaking in tongues is not necessarily the best indicator, because rather control and order is a sign of the Spirit's presence. So our proof of the personal nature of God has to start with our personal relationship with God. And the value of our prayer, that relationship, will be in evidence to the extent that we manifest those fruits of love, peace, and joy in our lives. There is more, of course. What we learn from the revelation of the Trinity uh, is another important thing, and that is that reality itself is essentially relational. And the simpler way to say this is to quote St. John, God is love. Love needs relationships to express itself. It doesn't make sense to have one isolated God of Aristotle who is love. That doesn't make sense. If God is love, this has to be shared. The three persons of the Trinity are distinguishable 
because they relate to other persons. So we both have this mystery of unity, but also triunity. So these things are actually, from the perspective of love, the same reality. What we discover is that our belief in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church requires us to exist as a church after this pattern of love in the Trinity. That is, we are to discover our unity as a church through love for one another. And we are equally to discover our individual distinctiveness through these same relationships that we have with one another. And this last point is the one I want to end on this morning. Unity in our individualistic world can often enough be a buzzword grounded not in love, but I think in resentment that other people have gifts that I don't have. So when others challenge us by their unique gifts and or deficiencies for that matter, when somebody makes me uncomfortable, it's uh, tempting to try and hound them into conformity with what my expectations are by appealing to unity, right? There's a great short story by Kurt Vonnegut. The brothers know already what I'm going to mention, what I'm talking about, because I mention it all the time. Harrison Bergeron, very short story. It's a bit chilling. It should really strike a chord with us today. The title character exists in a future, a not-too-distant future, where everyone is forced to be the same, completely equal. Uh, laws have been passed that everybody's going to be identical. And this means that uh, when you watch the ballet, the ballerinas have weights uh, tied to their ankles so that they're not more graceful than the rest of us. And the most intelligent people are given earpieces that use random bursts of noise so that they can't ever concentrate on anything, lest they show themselves to be more intelligent than I am, right? Harrison Bergeron, the title character, is, is so unique, he defeats every attempt to force him to be the same as everyone else and predictably must be eliminated, right? And unfortunately, we live in a world that's not too far removed from that. So we rightly fear this idea of unity. We think it's going to be used to control us in some way. We're resistant to it. But this is not what we learn from the revelation of the Trinity, because God is actually utterly free. His, the unity in the Trinity does not mean that the persons of the Trinity are unfree. They freely give of themselves to one another, freely honor one another. And that means our true freedom will reveal itself to us, not by our resistance to any kind of obligation, but in the patience, these are the fruits of the Spirit, the patience, kindness, and faithfulness with which we fulfill the unique tasks given to us by God in the relationships that we have in the church, in our families, and so on. This is why all authority in the church follows the model of Jesus Christ washing the feet of his disciples. The task of leadership is not to force us, soldier-like, into conformity, but to honor the charisms given to each. Again, this, this might require correction. I'm not saying that uh, uh, leadership has to give in to every whim of every person, but to foster the charisms in the church. Nor is the task of discipleship, for that matter, to pressure leaders to obey our enlightened self-interest. 
Rather, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the disciple in the Church must seek to preserve the good order in the Church by honoring the mysterious person of Jesus Christ embodied by those chosen to participate in Christ's headship. As St. Benedict says, in this way, all will be at peace. The task of all of us is continually to open ourselves to the influence of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, that we may discover the Father's will, his unique will for each of us, and then to carry it out with confidence and without fear, with love, eager to obtain the reward of glory promised us as joint heirs with his Son, Jesus Christ.